Isaiah 64 and 65. Look with me at the very first verse of this text because it is a prayer, a prayer where prophet Isaiah is pleading with the Lord. Isaiah 64 says this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and that the mountains might quake at your presence. Most movies and most books follow what you might call a story arc. You might be familiar with this concept. It's the chronology of a story that follows a pretty common or typical path. It's one of the reasons that if you miss the first 10 minutes of the movie, just don't go. And please don't ask your neighbor, what happened? It's part of the reason if you skip the first two chapters of reading a book, you'll be lost. Because understanding what's going on is shaped early in the storyline because of this story arc. The arc usually follows these steps. In the first few moments, the characters are introduced and the problem is identified. The problem gets worse, the conflict reaches its climax, the problem starts to be addressed and eventually the issue is resolved and the characters are changed. That kind of arc, you could follow any film, any book, most of them follow that storyline. And when you watch your next movie or start your, your next novel, you can see this arc. You'll be able to see the flow of the story. But do you know that the Bible also has a story arc connected to it. And it's similar to what I just described. While the Bible has 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New, written by 40 different authors, over 1,500 years, there is a singular theme woven throughout the Bible. And theologians describe this narrative of the Bible with four key words, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is what the whole Bible is about. Genesis to Revelation, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It's the grand narrative, it's the story arc of the Bible. And every book in the scriptures fits into this big picture theme. Some books fit a particular aspect of the story. Creation, the book of Genesis. Fall, the book of Genesis. Redemption, the book of, Revel of Romans. Redemption, the book of Romans. And restoration, the book of Revelation. Now some books highlight individual aspects of the theme. The book of Isaiah captures the entirety of the theme of creation, fall, and redemption. Since our journey in this glorious book, since June of last year, we've seen God's creative power, like in Isaiah chapter 40. We've read how Isaiah mourns over the fall and the sinfulness of his people in Isaiah chapter one. We've witnessed the prophetic promise of a redeemer in Isaiah 43. And in our text today, Isaiah 64 to 65, we see this progression of salvation history towards its ultimate fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. 
So here we are in Isaiah 64 and 65. We're coming to the last chapters of this glorious book. You need to know that our study in this book will conclude on June the 12th. I am sad to bid Isaiah farewell. It has been a glorious, glorious study. As I mentioned last week, we'll be moving into the summer of studying the book of Ecclesiastes with this particular title, Nothing Matters. But what if it did? This book addresses the prevailing sense of a confusing and frustrating and at times cynical world. Anybody ever feel cynical right now? Well, the book of Ecclesiastes will be helpful because it's a book that identifies how do you live faithfully in a world filled with cynicism? And then starting in August, on August 14th, we'll launch into a sermon series on the book of Revelation that should take us all the way to Easter of 2023. Now, in Isaiah 63, where we were last week, we saw that Isaiah presents this image of God where he invites us to marvel at the justice and mercy of God so that we long for him. We see him and we want more of him. And the aim of that sermon last week was to help create an appetite for more of God. There's an unfortunate chapter break in verse 19. Chapter 63 in verse 19 ends without its appropriate conclusion that now we see in chapter 64 and in chapter 65. So in our text today, we see the conclusion of the narrative arc, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, in the book of Isaiah. There's a request, oh, that you would come down. There's a response from God, here I am, here I am. And there's a resolution where God says, I make all things new. So you could think of this text really underneath the banner of a singular question, which is this, <clears throat> what, does what does wanting more of God lead to? What does wanting more of God lead to? And what you're gonna see in this text is a request. You'll see this powerful invitation to seek the face of God, you'll see a response from God, and you'll see divine resolution. So first, the request. In chapter 64, verses one through 12, this chapter resolves the tension of chapter 63, where Isaiah pleads with God to intervene. And in verses one through 12, we find a request for the powerful presence of God, the hardship, the brokenness of the world, and the brokenness of the people of God create a passion for the intervention of God. That's what verse one is all about. It's as though Isaiah says, God, if you could just show up, everything could change. Look at verse one, here it is, here's the prayer. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. Look at verse two. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to all your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Isaiah imagines the curtain of heaven being ripped in two and he wishes that God would just come down. 
This is a request, church, not only for God to be near his people, but a request for God's power and his glory to be felt. When God's power and when his glory come, it is felt by earthly people. That's why he says the mountains might quake as fire kindles brushwood or fire causes water to boil. Throughout history, when God shows up, powerful displays take place. Can you think of some? Think of the burning bush and Moses' encounter with God. Think of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20 or Isaiah's encounter with the glory of God in Isaiah chapter six when he said, woe is me, I'm undone for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The presence and the glory of God are both beautiful and frightening. That's why verse two focuses on those that are in opposition. The request here is for God to come and to make things right in the world. Isaiah wants God to come and make his name known to his adversaries so that nations might tremble at his presence. What happens here is that Isaiah knows how deeply the people of God need his help and there's a clear sense of dependency in the text. Look at verse three. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. You see, when God's glory and when his power are understood, you become aware not only of how amazing God is, but how needy you are. That's why verse three says, you did awesome things that we did not look for, that God moves in ways that are often confusing and confounding. Christian, can I ask you, is there a time in your life when you could look back right now and realize that God brought a solution, he brought deliverance, he brought assistance, or he brought help out of nowhere? Can you think of a moment when God surprised you with a solution that you didn't see coming? One moment you were complaining, saying, God, where are you? And right around the corner, there he was, helping, providing, solving. That's what Isaiah is celebrating here. In fact, it leads to an important affirmation. Look at verse four. It's a really important text in the book of Isaiah. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who act for themselves. Is that what the text says? No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who worry about everything. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who strategically plan everything in their life. No, the text says, no eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. By way of reminder, waiting means trusting God with what I know is true about him when I don't know what's true about my life. Some of us spent most of last week overly focusing on what we don't know about our lives when there's a wealth of evidence in regards to what we know is true about God. God works for those who wait for him. So the role of the people of God is to be seeking God for help and in their seeking of him, and when they get glimpses of who he is, it creates an acknowledgement of their weakness and their inability. 
This last week I was privileged to attend the retirement celebration for Reese Kaufman, who faithfully has led Child Evangelism Fellowship for 33 years. Lived in Indianapolis, sold his business, took the leadership reins of this ministry, probably the largest ministry focused on the evangelism of children around the world. And at his retirement event, he made a statement that struck me. It fits with our text. Here's what he said. If dependency is my goal, then weakness is an asset. That should like be in the Bible, right? <laughs> that is so right. Again, if dependency is my goal, then weakness is an asset. God works for those who wait for him. Church, one of the goals of Sunday morning worship is to remind ourselves, to remind each other that we need God. There are many reasons that we need this reminder week after week. Our, our self-sufficiency, our pride, our desire to achieve, our constant consumption, our regular need for more and more and more all prevail and collude against a high view of who and what God is. I'm listening to a book right now by Andy Crouch called The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World, and he suggests that the problem with technology at any level is it helps us in some respects, but it also always gives us a misplaced sense of superpower that increases our self-sufficiency and our distance from real relationships. Example, go to a restaurant and do you not see people all gathered around the table sharing a meal together, not talking, but engaging on social media on their phones? Rather than engage with real people right across the table, we'd rather engage with people who aren't even there in a world that isn't even real. The more human advance, the more humans advance, the easier it is for us to be both isolated and self-sufficient. And so here is this request. God, come near, because no eye has seen a God besides you, the one who acts for those who wait for him. So a right view of God creates a right view of self. Look at verse seven, or five rather. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? Notice what's happening here. He gets a high view of God and in the moment when he sees the glory and the beauty of what God is like, he not only is relieved because of the unbelievable vision of who God is, but he also is immediately reminded that he's not like that. So here's just a hint, the more older you get and the longer you know who Jesus is, you should expect the bigger a sinner you understand that you really are. That should be encouraging for some of you because you're like, yeah, I totally get that. Like that's, 
Here's a strange thing. The older I get, the more I realize how much deeper I need to go in my relationship with Christ. The more I understand strange motivations and and sin issues that lie lurking around the corner. And the more you understand the glory of God, the more you understand how much you need him. So if you've come today and you've known Jesus for a long time, but you don't feel like you need him very much, something's wrong. If you come to church today broken with a heart that says, I need more of him, that's exactly where you should be. Verse six, we have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf in our iniquities, like the wind take us away. This actually sounds very much like the book of Ecclesiastes. The longer you live, the more you realize, man, life is not here, it's in another realm. Verse seven, there is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hands of our iniquities. So Isaiah's request for God to come down now reveals the need in his own life and in the life of God's people. But notice the hope in verse eight, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are our potter, we are the work of your hand. What a statement. He says in verse nine, be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness, Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation, our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself with these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Do you hear the discontentment? As Isaiah longs for God to come down, he sees the plague amongst his people, he sees the destruction of his society and his prayer is, God, would you just show up? Would you come down? because he knows that the presence of God can change everything. Do you know one word to describe this in American religious history is the word revival. Revival. It's a season when the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit comes. We're all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is accessible and available to all of us in a remarkable way, but there are movements. Movements where conviction and the spread of the gospel happens at a rapid pace. Those times in American and global history when thousands, even millions of people were gloriously converted and such that changes in society even began to take place. I'll give you one rather humorous example. In the Welsh Revival, there was so much widespread conversion that police officers ran out of things to do because there was no crime. In fact, the mines had a problem. Like the mines where they're digging out coal, they had a problem because there was such a sweeping movement of conversion among the coal miners that the donkeys that they had trained to go down into the mines, most of them had been trained by cursing. So that when cursing stopped, the mules didn't know how to respond. What if God were to do that again? 
Most movements of revival and renewal, when God came down, were preceded by moments of great national crisis. The Jesus movement came out of the 1970s and the Vietnam War. There were sweeping movements of revival just after the Civil War. In moments of national crisis in the 17 and 1800s, revival swept the country. What if, in our generation, a mighty movement of God's spirit might come, but it might not come without much travail? As we pray, God, would you rend the heavens and come down? What if we prayed, God, would you come and bring righteousness to our society and repentance to your people? That's the request, here's the response. In chapter 65, we get the opportunity to hear directly from God. This divine response oozes with grace. Verses one through seven detail the mercy of God as he is willing to be reached out to by those who are not seeking him. Verse one, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. That's a a reference here to people outside of Israel. That's a reference to you and me, Gentiles, who've been brought into the family of God. You should praise God for verse one. I said in verse one, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. Notice God's grace, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in the way that is not good following their own devices. Notice the grace of God, a people who provoked me to my face continually, and then notice their idolatry, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. This is reference to the worship of other gods who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. This is to some sort of mysticism or some sort of syncretism with the pagan gods and the worship of Yahweh, verse five, who, or verse four B, who eat pig's flesh and broth tainted meat in their, and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. So people who are defiled. These are, God is giving us a laundry list of the people that he comes after and is willing to be sought by. Verse five, and to those who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. <laughs> the hypocritical. These are a smoke in my nostril, a fire that burns all the day. So God's response to his people's request for him to come down is to identify two very distinct paths of life. There's a path of what it means to embrace him as God and a path of what it means to reject him. Look at what he says in verse six. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. Now let's read this carefully. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. He's not saying here that they're gonna be punished for their father's sins, but what he is saying, this is really important, that if you act like your fathers did, and if you continue to follow the rebellious path of the history of your people, whether that's a family or a nation, that there is stored up discipline for the repetitive rebellion of God's people. 
Some of you are the first Christian in the generation of a long line of people in your home. Can I exhort you and encourage you? Break the cycle of the past. Some of you right now look at your life and you look at your family tree and you think, those people were wicked, awful sinners. And you look back at your family history with a little bit of arrogance. And what the New Testament writers warn us in the Gospel of Luke is about thinking that if we lived in a previous generation, we would act differently when the fact of the matter is we're not known for repentance right now. That's the pattern of God's people. That's what Isaiah is leaning into. Because, verse seven, they made offerings on mountains, they insulted me on their hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Again, these are strong words. There's a split coming in the path. These people are called to live godly and righteous lives, but they live in an increasingly hostile world. Verse eight, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there's blessing in it, so I will do for my servant's sake, and not destroy them all. He's referring to a remnant. So when he speaks to Israel, there's always a remnant, a group of faithful people in the middle of the nation who are trying to follow him, who hear the voice of God, who pray, God, if you could just come down and help us. And then we see the contrast. Look, skip ahead to verse 13. Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. He's, he's parting the roads here, similarly as to what happens in Matthew chapter seven where Jesus says that narrow is the gate that leads to life and wide is the road that leads to destruction. Or in Matthew 25 when he talks about separating the, the sheep from the goats. Verse 13, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. My servants shall sing for gladness, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for the breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to be my chosen for a curse and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name. There's quite a contrast that's taking place here in the text that when God comes down, there is both an outpouring of his grace and a dividing line that's drawn. When God's spirit comes, when there's a mighty movement of God, there's a community that chooses to live by the God of truth. Look at verse 16. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. So what's happening here is that when God's people request for God to come, and when God envisions his presence, it creates a new community. You can think of it as a new kingdom, a realm in which God's people receive what they long for. The presence of God creates an environment marked by God's glory, by grace, and by truth. And all of this begs the question, is this what we really want? When you read Isaiah, you realize that the presence of God is not only glorious, but it also requires 
for his people to make a decision. What is it that I'm really living for? Finally, this text identifies a resolution in verses 17 through 25. So where is all of this headed? Where is the, the, the tension of God's presence is felt and yet also there's a dividing line? What is the arc of God's plan? We get a hopeful picture of the finish line of human history. In the closing verses of chapter 65, we get a glorious picture which is designed to be a deep motivator for God's people. Look at verse 17, it sings, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Why does he have to do that? Why does he say this? Because the people of God living on earth know unless you create something new, there's not gonna be any hope. The former things, he says, shall not be remembered or come to mind. Anybody else have this weird thing that happens on their phone? I have either a a Google notification with pictures or a Facebook memory from like three years ago or four years ago and sometimes that pops up and I'm like, oh, that was a great memory. And every once in a while it pops up and I'm like, oh, that was, no, I don't wanna, that was, that was a bad memory. Well, all of those bad memories, whatever they were about your failings or the difficulty or the hardship in life, just think of this, the new heavens and the new earth are gonna be so glorious that those things won't even come to mind anymore. It, it, they won't even be possible to think about. Verse 18, be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, verse 19, and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. So tail ends of the tragedy of life, a child that doesn't live very long, or an old man that doesn't live long enough. For the young man shall die a 100 years old and the sinner a 100 years old shall be accursed. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. In other words, no one is going to work and then feel like their work was pointless. I built a house and didn't even get to live in it. I planted a vineyard and somebody else ate all my fruit. Verse 22, they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be and my chosen shall enjoy, so long enjoy the work of their hands. Verse 23, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the Lord and their descendants with them. Notice this beautiful picture fulfilled in the book of Revelation in its entirety. And then we come to the conclusion. Notice this. Before they call, I will answer. Okay. Just think of that a moment. Before they call, I will answer. Why does he say that? Because for generations upon generations, the people of God are in trouble and they call upon God and they ask him to answer. 
And in this moment, they don't need to call anymore because God has answered before they've even needed to call. In other words, he's removed the thing that would make them call. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Why does he say that? Because there are times when we speak and we pray and we wonder, God, do you hear? That will never, ever cross your mind anymore. The whole created order will change. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Crazy scene. You got a wolf and a lamb laying down, eating grass together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. You know how crazy inverted this is in the created order? The dust shall be the serpent's food. And then the conclusion. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Everything that damages or everything that creates destruction is completely removed and it's all guaranteed by three words in the text. Says the Lord. Would you say those three words with me? Says the Lord. Again, say it again. Says the Lord. This is what is pronounced and created by virtue of God's decree. The same God who spoke and light existed is the same God who speaks again and says, there will be no more hurt, no more destruction in all my holy mountain. So this is the arc of salvation history and it's designed to shape the lives of those who know and love Jesus. It's a complicated text, there's so much here. Three reasons why this is helpful. Number one, church, this text reminds us that what we need more than anything else is the powerful intervention of a holy God. When life becomes hard or difficult, rather than merely groaning under the weight of that hardship, we ought also to use it as an opportunity to be reminded of our need for God's help, for us to say, God, I need you. Realizing that we say that over and over and over in this lifetime, and there will be a day when we will say it no more. But until then, on a regular basis, God's people have to cry out to him and say, God, we need you. Secondly, this text shows us that divine intervention creates two paths. When God shows up, a choice has to be made. It's a choice between living God's way or living our way. A choice between God at the center or putting him at the margin of our lives. It's the choice that happened when Jesus came and people had to decide, is he the son of God or not? And when God comes, people have to decide. And if you're not a Christian, you need to decide, who is Jesus to you? C.S. Lewis said he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. But you gotta decide who he is. For those who know Christ as our savior and king, he becomes the means by which a new path is created for us to live. And finally, third, this text invites us 
to remember where history is headed so that we don't become too attached to this world or live as if this is the only realm that really matters. Christians are called to live on earth with heaven in mind. This is how Peter talks about it in 2 Peter. Listen to this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will burn up and be dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Whoa, if you don't know Jesus, that's a scary reality. If you're a Christian, you're like, bring it on, let's go. And then Peter says this, since all these things are to be thus dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness? Waiting for, even hastening the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. You see friends, this is the plan of history. This is the hope of every Christian. This is how we live, knowing that we're part of the divine story being written. It's a story that begins with God. It's a story that ends with God. It's a story that shows us one compelling truth that can change your life, and it's this. Our God saves. God, we thank you for complicated, thick texts like Isaiah 64 and 65 that remind us how much we need you and how deeply powerful your presence is. The fact that the Holy Spirit right now dwells among each Christian is a stunning reality and we pray that you would apply this text to where individual Christians are today. God, we want you to rend the heavens and come down. We want you, oh God, to let your glory be known and seen and in this little embassy of heaven at College Park Church, we pray that godliness and holiness would mark the people who are part of this community. God, would you let our lives be different than those around us? Let our words be seasoned with grace. Let us be marked as a people who look like and smell like Jesus in our actions. Help us, Lord, the gravitational pull of our society and culture is so strong. Help us to be a remnant, a group of people committed to following Jesus. And we thank you that one day, the sky's gonna split, you're gonna come, all this is gonna be dissolved and you will reign forever and ever. We can hardly wait, but until then, Lord, we need you. Oh, how we need you. So come right now and meet us where we are. We pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said together, amen.